series is one of me looking at Paul from the perspective of being his lawyer. What if I had been hired when Paul got arrested in the temple in 57 AD? How would I have handled his case? What would I have done? How does that maybe inform us a little bit differently about Paul and give us a chance to look at him in a different light? So with that, we are looking at him again this morning. Now, any of you who went to law school, um, which generally doesn't happen with people who go to church, but no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Mel down here's front row. Good lawyer. Mike Moriarty. I mean, there are countless lawyers in here. And uh, 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 you will recall, my lawyer friends, that one of the courses we had to take in law school was called criminal law. Now, this does not mean call me with your criminal problems because I've promptly forgotten everything I learned. But, no, I'm joking. I do some criminal work, but not very much. One of the things that you learn in criminal law is this legal concept called mens rea. Mens rea. Now, evidently, that was in the movie Legally Blonde. And so if you've got that movie in your brain, you may already know what it is, thanks to that gal that was legally blonde. But for those of you who may not be so fresh on the concept, let me tell you that in Latin, mens rea means a guilty mind. Here is the premise. Most crimes... To be convicted, you have to have a guilty intent. For most crimes, you have to have some appropriate level of guilty intent. Now, you might be thinking, well, I didn't think that was it at all. I thought ignorance is no excuse and, you know, da, 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 da. Well, if you're speeding, it's not an excuse. You can't say, well, officer, I... Thought I was going 55. I did not know I was going 120. That excuse, trust me, it does not work. Um, let me give you the classic law school example on this, okay? Let's say that uh, um, uh, uh, I've got an issue with mice, rats. So I get some rat poison. Now, rat poison can look like sugar. So I'm in the kitchen, and I've got my rat poison, and I'm putting my rat poison into various different traps that I'm going to go take outside and set. When knock, 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 there's a knock at the door. So I stop what I'm doing in the kitchen, and I go to the front door. Meanwhile... I have a house guest who's just waking up, goes into the kitchen to get a cup of coffee, sees my rat poison, and proceeds to take a spoonful of what looks like sugar and put it into his coffee and then dies. Can I be convicted of murder? No. I didn't have the guilty intent. I did. Now, I might be, I might have had enough 
idiocy to be guilty of negligent homicide or manslaughter. I might have had a negligent intent. I might not have been acting reasonably prudent. But I can't be guilty of murder because this was not an, I, I had no intent. I didn't, I didn't intend to, for my house guest to die unless like he'd overstayed his welcome. And in my illustration, that did not happen. So whenever you're looking at a criminal case, one of the things that you want to look at is the person's, the accused's state of mind. It's extremely important for the crime. But it's not only important for the crime in the sense of the issue of intent, did they intend, but it's also important because it tells you what kind of person you're dealing with. Now, criminal law is a little different today than it was in the time of Paul, in the United States criminal system especially, but mens rea was a concept in the original Roman law. In Roman law, one of the things you had to prove was the concept that the person was indeed purposefully doing something. We'll get more into Roman law later, not in this class, in, in, in weeks to come as we get closer to the trial and we look at how the trial would lay out. But I care about it because not just of the intent, the mens rea, but I also care about it because I want to know what kind of person I'm representing. So these, 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 these occur to me because I have some questions that arise when I read about Paul's speech that incited some of the rioting. In Acts 22, 4 through 5, we have this speech of Paul, and, and look at what he says. And you know this if you've been in the class. You probably know it even if you haven't. But it's still... I want you to look at it as a lawyer for a minute. Paul says, begins, brothers and fathers, he's speaking to the Jews there. Hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard him address him in the Hebrew language, they became more quiet. He says, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the laws of our fathers. That's the Pharisees. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. If they weren't zealous for God, they probably wouldn't have been in the temple. And they wouldn't have been so upset with Paul. He said, I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering to prison men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. I'm his lawyer. He's standing up there and he's telling everybody, I persecuted this way. This way are the people who believe that Jesus is the way to God. And I'm reading that as his lawyer and I'm thinking, really? You did what? You kill people? You typically don't want your clients coming in telling you, oh, by the way, I've been telling everybody about all the killing I've been doing. 
that's not, you know, there's a general rule that we live by. Jurors give good verdicts to good people. The mean, the killers, jurors typically say, well, they had it coming. If not this time, then last time. I mean, when did you do this, Paul? Why did you do this? And I also got to tell you, now remember, Paul's been arrested for inciting a riot. That's what the Romans cared about. And so there's part of me that's also thinking, okay, what's going on here? And I got a little post-it note, and I'm going to write it down. Because there's something kind of squirrely about all of this. It would make sense to me that he incited a riot if it were the people he was persecuting and killing the family members of who were rioting. If he's killing the, the these what we now call Christians, they'd not uh, uh, actually they at this point had been called Christians in Antioch. But if they're if they're killing the Christians, Paul's doing that. I'd expect those to be the ones who are rioting. You killed my mom. You killed my dad. You killed my brother. But it's not the Christians who are rioting. It's the people who hate the Christians who are rioting. And so something's squirrely here. And it's going to cause me as a lawyer to say, I need to understand this better. I need some research. I need to answer these questions. I need to know what really happened. I need to know when it happened. I need to know how it happened. And I need to know why Paul did what he did. You with me? That's the purpose of this class. So the story happened in Acts 6 and 7, or at least that's where we're told about it. And if we put that on a timeline, if we don't know exactly when Jesus uh, was crucified, but let's say it was 33 AD, really good arguments that that's actually the, the, the appropriate date. So Jesus crucified somewhere 30 to 33 AD. Let's say 33 AD. If that's when Jesus was crucified, we can date pretty well these events with Paul. What we're dealing with now, Paul's riot, is around 57 A.D. And we can get pretty close to that. So where was this stoning of Stephen? Well, Acts 6 and 7 don't tell us exactly when it was. They don't give us the exact date, but they give us an approximation. We're able to say Stephen was stoned probably within a couple of years after the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's put it at C-35. C stands for the Latin about. Circa is what we would say today. Kirkum in the Latin. So about 35 A.D., something in that time range. Now, if we want to know the story of what happened, then we're going to go to Acts 6 and 7 because that's where it recounts. And I want you to see, I told you, before we were in official class, when we were getting ready to do the questionnaires or doing announcements, I said the key word for today is Hanukkah. Okay. Here's some of the reason why. Acts 6. In those days, so this is about 35 A.D., 
the disciples were increasing in number and a complaint by the Hellenists arose among against the Hebrews. Their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, who is a Hellenist? Helene or Hellas was the Greek word for Greece. So a Hellenist was a Greek Jew. Still Jewish, but Greek-speaking, Greek culture, a diaspora. One of the Jews that, that came out of the, um, that, that, that were Greekanized, for lack of a better way of saying it, or Hellenized. In fact, you can look at the footnote that the English Standard Version gives, and they tell you down at the bottom, that is Greek-speaking Jews. So these were Greekanized Jews. And they were complaining that the Hebrew Jew Jews, by Hebrew Jews, I mean all Jews are Hebrews, but Hebrew-speaking Jews, those that were Palestinian-rooted, still steeped in their Hebrew and Aramaic, were not fairly distributing. And it doesn't say that, that it was intentional. It may have just been that they couldn't speak the language as well, that the Greek-speaking widows were not as bold because of a language barrier. We, we, we can't, don't read malice into this. But the 12 saw that there was a problem, so they summoned all of the disciples and said, look, we can't start doing this, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick out seven men of good repute who are full of the spirit and wisdom and appoint them. And so they picked them out, and among those that they chose was Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now, this happens, and the word of God continues to increase and multiply, and then a lot of people start becoming based in Christ, trusting Jesus as Messiah, including a great many of the priests. So now there's a problem that's arising, and look what happens. Stephen is full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs. And then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia. Who's from Cilicia? And Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. They seized him. They brought him in front of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. They set up false witnesses. And they tried him in the Sanhedrin. And we have the trial in Stephen's defense in chapter 7. The high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen says, brothers and fathers, Hear me. And he starts giving a recount of Jewish history understood within the framework of how it speaks about the coming Messiah, the one who will save the people of Israel from their sins, the promised one. And so he talks about how it's going to be the offspring of Abraham. And he walks through how this is going to happen and the promise that's going to draw near. And as he walks through and speaks of it all, he finally gets to Jesus being him. And then he says, you stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's a big insult. You always resist the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did. Your fathers killed all the prophets who announced beforehand the righteous one was coming. And then you betrayed and you murdered him. Okay, that's not how to win friends and influence people. I've made many jury arguments in my life. I've had many arguments in front of judges. I have never stood up and said, well, you bunch of uncircumcised Philistines. You've never done anything right in your life. Why do I expect you to do something right now? You're like your father. Garbage. That's not necessarily the way he was saying it, but that's certainly the way they seemed to take it. When they heard these things, they were enraged. That's English for angry. They ground their teeth at him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he tells them that. Behold, I see the heavens opened and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they cry out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they're stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cries out, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. And then he dies. Falls asleep. Now that's the story. So what is this? Are these a bunch of radical religious extremists? To use today's vocabulary. I mean we live in America. We have a first amendment. We have freedom of religion. You can believe any cockamamie thing you want to. Nobody's going to kill you over it. I mean, we've got people in this land who believe truly wacko stuff. There are people in this land who believe, I believe, truly wacko stuff. But I'm allowed to, and they're allowed to. And no religious extremist is going to come in here and say, no, I'm going to kill you because of what you believe. Doesn't happen to us. And so we've got to try to figure out how to get into the context of where Paul was and what was going on. That's the way we're going to get to the motive. We've got to get into the context and we've got to get into the motive. And the key for us on this is a passage, actually there's a bunch of them, but I chose the one out of Philippians 3, 5 through 6, where Paul was writing and he was talking about his heritage. And look what he says in Philippians 3, 5 through 6. He says, uh, I was... I'm a Jew among Jews. I've got all these things about my Judaism. He says, as to, ze um, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, those are powerful statements. Paul's saying he's a Pharisee, a zealous one who persecuted the church. That his righteousness under the law was blameless. What is it about Pharisaism that allowed this to go on? 
that made Paul claim that as a Pharisee he did this? The answer is what? Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. It's not just Jewish Christmas. We need to understand Hanukkah. It's the reason the stoning of Stephen starts out with the story about the Hellenized Jews, Jewish Christians, upset that they they weren't getting the share they needed from the non-Hellenized or Hebrew Jewish Christians. That's not just thrown in there as a freebie. That sets up an understanding of what was going on with Stephen and ultimately even with Paul. To get this, we've got to get into that context. We need to understand Hanukkah. So let's go to the Elmo and let's become Hanukkah literate. You ready? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Ha nu ka. Hanukkah. You got it? Want to write it in Hebrew? It comes from a Hebrew word, Hanach. Hanan, actually. Hanan. It's Hanan. Hanan means to dedicate. Dedicate. Hanukkah is a celebration of the rededication of the temple. It's also called in the New Testament, because Jesus celebrates it in John 10, the Feast of Dedication. Because that's what Hanan is. It is dedication of the temple. Now, why did they need to dedicate the temple? How are we doing time-wise? I didn't know how much time. Ah, tamale. Okay, um... Here's the deal. So if you look back at the Middle East over in that area, that's Turkey, Syria, Egypt. You've got Egypt here. This is Egypt. Okay? You've got pyramids over here. Okay? That's Egypt. Then over here is Israel. Okay? So that's Israel. All right? Now, right up here, north of Israel, is this country that's causing a lot of trouble these days called Syria. You got it? All right. After Alexander the Great, his kingdom's divided up into four different areas. You've got an Egyptian part here, and you've got a Seleucid Empire here. And this is the Ptolemies who run Ptolemy. The Ptolemies run Egypt. All right. Here's the problem. Israel's in the middle. So for a long time, Israel's part of Egypt. But then, around 200, a little after 200 B.C., the Seleucids conquer Israel, and that becomes the Seleucid Empire. So Israel is now reporting to the Seleucid king, who is Antiochus III. Antiochus III has a son, names him Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanies means, uh, 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 well, you know what an epiphany is, and it comes from that word. 
So the the uh, manifestation, the uh, uh, reality appearance. So Antiochus the fourth, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in, and he is now over Israel. And Antiochus Epiphanes does something. Now Alexander the Great was from where? Macedon, think northern Greece. He took Greek everywhere. That's why the world speaks Greek at the time, okay? His teacher had been Aristotle, okay? Got all this stuff going in your brain. Make sure we're all pulling in these threads to make the big tapestry picture. So Antiochus IV invades, takes over, or takes over from his dad who invaded, Israel, and proceeds to, are you ready for this? Outlaw Judaism. He outlaws Judaism. He makes it, he, he sets up in the temple, the Jewish temple, a tribute to uh, uh, the Canaan equivalent of Zeus. Okay? So he sets up in the temple uh, uh, this uh, um, homage, altar to, to Baal Shaman. Uh, which just think Zeus sacrifices pigs in the temple, something that's unholy and unclean, forbids study of the Torah, and then has all of his armies, troops, guys, take around his image as God incarnate to all of the little Israeli towns for the Jews to bow down and worship. Well, they go to this one town, and there's a Jew there who's going to have none of it. And he picks up a spear, and he chunks it, and kills the soldier, and starts a massive rebellion that his sons, especially his youngest son, Judas Maccabeus, spearheads, for lack of a better way of saying it, and they conduct guerrilla warfare for a number of years until finally they win liberty because they fought for the right to keep Judaism as Moses prescribed it, as the Torah taught it. And once they won that liberty from the Seleucid Empire and defeated Antiochus IV, he cried mercy. They have to rededicate the temple because it's been it's been swined and it's been turned into a temple of idolatry. So they go in there, and by the way, Antiochus was not just some mean nut who hated Judaism. There was Judaism within that was almost on the brink of a civil war already because a lot of the Jews thought that Greek stuff was pretty cool. So there were Hellenized Jews who were quicker to sell out the Hebrewized Jews' view of Moses. But not those who followed the revolt. It's out of that revolt that the Pharisees got their their beginning. That's that you don't read Pharisees in the Old Testament. They didn't happen in the Old Testament. This happened in the 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. 
So it's out of that movement that the Pharisees came who were going to fight against the Greek concept of taking Judaism and Greekanizing it. They were going to keep it pure. Paul sees what's going on along with others. And Paul knows the Old Testament teaching. Paul knows, go back to the PowerPoint for a moment. Paul knows that the Old Testament talks about um, Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 2 and 15. I don't have time to go to it. But here's what it says. It's Moses' last sermon to the people. And he says to the people, he says, look, if you keep my law, God's going to bless you and all of these wonderful things are going to happen. But if you do not keep my law, and you turn aside and you start worshiping the idols of the other countries and the other beliefs. God's going to tear you apart and he's going to tear your land from you. And he's going to bring, bring destruction down on you till you beg for mercy. And this had happened historically to Israel. This happened to the ten tribes of northern kingdom. When uh, Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser and all came down from Assyria and conquered. This happened when... When uh, uh, the, the Babylonian Empire comes in and invades Judah and the southern kingdom and deports everybody. They knew historically this would happen. This is what tried to happen. And those were the scriptures that, 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 that the Maccabean revolt was built on. It said, no, we're going to stand for the purity of God and his faithful Torah. And then here comes this Stephen... And within this new Jewish sect of Christianity called the Way, he's now one of the voice pieces for the Hellenized Jews. And what are they all doing anyway? Ultimately, they're all saying this Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. Jesus said as much on Hanukkah. Jesus on Hanukkah, John chapter 10. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, that's Hanukkah. See, what happened, the, the reason they, they, the, the Jews rededicated the temple, and when they rededicated it, they had the menorah that they were going to light, but that was going to be one for each day. They had eight days of rededication. But they only had enough kosher oil to last for one day, legend has it. So legend has it that God... Uh, uh, somehow through miracle caused that oil to sustain so that it worked for eight days. So that's why you light the menorah, eight days of Hanukkah. Those are the eight days where they rededicated the temple so that it would be pure again to offer sacrifices to God. So Jesus is at this feast of dedication. He's at the Hanukkah in Jerusalem. It's winter. We knew that. Hanukkah's in December. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The Jews gathered around and said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. One of the songs that they sang in Hanukkah was for the Messiah to come. Because they wanted liberation. They didn't just want to revolt against the Seleucid Empire where they could practice their faith. They wanted out from under the thumb of Rome now, at this point in history. They wanted liberation. They wanted to become the mighty nation that ruled all. 
So Jesus, is it you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Tell us plainly. Jesus says, I told you, you just don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You don't believe because you're not among my sheep. He says, look, I and the Father are one. The Jews pick up stones to stone him. Jesus says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. What are you going to stone me for? Well, it's not for good works we're going to stone you. We're going to stone you for blasphemy. You're a man and you make yourself out to be God. Jesus said, isn't it written in your law, you're all gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture can't be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? You see that? That's the key. What is Hanukkah? Comes from the Greek, uh, the Hebrew word, Hanan, to dedicate. In Hebrew, Jesus is using Hanukkah for himself. I'm the one. I'm the one that God dedicated. I'm the temple. I'm the place where sins are atoned for. I'm the place where you meet your Lord. I am the way. I'm the dedicated one. I'm the miracle of light. I'm the light that's come into this world that cannot be extinguished. I'm the light that's, that, 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 that is kosher and follows the law. Jesus makes that claim. Now, that's what Stephen, that's what the Christians believe. That's who Jesus is. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the King. He's the Son of God. He's the dedicated one. He is the way. And Paul will have nothing of it. So now we go back to the stoning of Stephen. Here's Stephen. He's Mr. Hellenizing Jew. Which, I mean, all of this just, it it stirs the very deep, deepest parts of foundations of Pharisaism. Pharisees were willing to give their lives to stop a false religion, to stop people from bowing down to Antiochus Epiphanes as if he is God manifest. And he's going to solve the, the, the Jewish religion problems by getting rid of it. And, and Paul's ancestors, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. His ancestors fought and won the right to worship under the Torah. How is he going to now believe this Mr. Hellenizing Jew 2.0? Who says it's a Jesus you should bow down and worship? Paul, Mr. Pharisee, knew better. And he knew better because Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. He said, so that's what the law says. The law says God curses anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus, how'd he die? He hung on a tree. He said, well, that was a piece of wood. That's where wood comes from. Don't go hyper-technical on me here. Jesus, so here's Paul's thinking. God says, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus hung on a tree. Therefore, Jesus is cursed. The Messiah is not cursed. The Messiah should be blessed. Jesus cannot be the Messiah. See, Paul didn't understand 
that Jesus was blessed, that the curse was because of us. Jesus was not cursed for his sin. He was cursed for ours because he took our sin. And Paul didn't know that at the time. So we've got that. We've got the story. We've got now the context. We've got the motive. Paul thought he was defending God and God's ways and God's rights. So now what are the events? Did you know if you Google image stoning of Stephen, you're going to get pictures like this. That's Rembrandt. They're getting ready to chunk rocks on him. See it? Or you could pull up this picture which highlights as they're getting ready to chunk rocks, uh, Stephen seeing Jesus at the right hand of God. Or you might pull up this picture, which shows Paul off to the side with the cloaks approving. The problem with all of that is, is none of that's the way stoning took place. Stoning took place, they shoved you off a cliff. History tells us the stoning of Stephen took place Right about at Golgotha. There's a church to St. Stephen built there adjoining the Ecole Biblique, which is the French Bible Archaeology School um, uh, there in Jerusalem on this hillside. And it was built there because back, at least going back into the 400s, that was the site where Stephen was stoned. See, and what they did is they push you off the cliff. And if it didn't kill you, then they'd chunk a big rock down on your heart. They'd have some guy down there roll you over so that you're on your back if the 20, 30, 40 foot fall didn't kill you. It had to be at least twice the height of man, but that's much higher than that. They'd roll you over and then they'd chunk a big rock. And if that didn't work, then everybody started chunking rocks at you till you died. But generally you died from the fall. You can read about this in the Mishnah. It's got a section on Sanhedrin, which is punishment. And it's really interesting to see. We've got five minutes. We've got to blaze through this, but don't lose me. This stuff's important. When the sentence of stoning has been passed, the Mishnah, by the way, is was written down around 200 A.D., but it was an oral tradition that had been around and accumulated for 400 years. From 100, I mean, from the time, uh, basically, the time of Antiochus Epiphanes is when they started writing some of this stuff down and and accumulating it to make sure it didn't get lost. When the sentence of stoning has been passed, they take him forth to stone him. The place of stoning was far away from the court. As it's written, bring him, bring forth him that's cursed without the camp. You took him outside the city walls. This is uh, uh, the, the picture I showed you. is about a, a fourth of a mile uh, north of, of the, the Saint, gate of St. Stephen. Um, uh, bring forth him that, that's cursed without the camp. One man stands at the door of the court with a towel in his hand. This is the equivalent of our modern phones to make sure, you know, in the death chambers today, they've got a phone in case the governor or the Supreme Court calls the last minute to grant clemency. Um, One man stands at the door of the court with a towel in his hand. Another mounts on a horse far away, but near enough to see him. If someone in the court says, I have a reason to acquit him, the man waves the towel The horse runs, and the horse stops whoever it is. And the person, if the person at the site says, okay, I want to recant, there are multiple chances that are given. And it keeps going. When they're 10 cubits, think 15 feet, from the place of pushing him off the cliff, 
They say, make your confession, for that's the way they've been condemned to death, to make confession. I mean, you got to confess if you want eternal life, they said. So they want them to, you know, here's your chance, you're 15 feet away, you want to go ahead and confess. And the confession itself is rather profound. The confession says, may my death atone for my sins. Stephen's not going to make that confession. Stephen's not going to say, I was wrong. Jesus is not Messiah. Stephen's going to do none of that. So then when they're four cubits, six feet from the place of stoning, they take off his clothes. They keep a covering in the front for a man and a woman front and back. The place of stoning had to be twice the height of a man or above. One of the witnesses knocks him down on his loins. That means he pushes him over. Why do you think they had took off their cloaks for Paul to hold before they stoned him? It wasn't so they could get a little more leverage. It's because when you're pushing someone off a cliff, you don't want a bunch of loose clothes for him to grab hold of. Stephen never recants. Stephen doesn't recant. What Stephen does is something very different. Stephen prays for Paul and the others. Stephen says, falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, don't hold this sin against him. When he said this, he fell asleep. So when he falls down, he falls and hits his knees. He says, Lord, forgive them. And don't hold this sin against them. That's what happened. This is where it likely happened or a place like this. We've got from the mission of the recounting. And, and so here's my question. Was Paul a bad guy? In 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, Paul says the following. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. Why? He says, yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's pretty graphic in the Greek. You don't want to read it in the Greek. Um, in the Greek, it says, uh, here's the nice translation. Last of all, as to one untimely born. Untimely born is a polite way of saying a dead fetus, aborted tissue. That's what the Greek means. Last of all, like a dead fetus. He appeared to me. That's who Paul was before Jesus appeared to him. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. Was Paul a bad guy? No. Paul was a misguided zealot who became a zealot for the truth when he learned the truth. And he never got over what he had done, even though he was forgiven. Here are our points for home. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I love the way that he would die for what he believed in. He's not, he had multiple chances to recant. He had multiple chances to confess. He had multiple assurances that if he did so, either they'd revoke the sentence or he would at least have, uh, by his Jewish understanding without Christ, eternal life. 
No. He knew whom he had believed in and was persuaded that Jesus was able to keep what he committed to him, to borrow from Paul. But I also like this prayer because Stephen's praying for Paul and others. And I'm sure that prayer never left Paul's mind. Or at least it echoed back. He prayed for me while I held the cloak so that people could more safely kill him. And that prayer for Steve, that Stephen had for Paul and the others is also a prayer for us. I need to take seriously my faith in what I'm about. Paul's mentor Gamaliel said, if Christianity is of man, it will fail. If it's of God, you won't be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. I want to be on God's side. I know who wins in the end. I know it's a struggle now. I know these are difficult times. I know it's tough. People are sick. People fight uh, a disease, economic problems, social problems, family problems. Everybody in the world has problems. But we have a God who will be victorious and walks with us in victory. And I'm thankful for that. I'm excited to see you all next Sunday. Can I bless you in the name of the Lord? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, the dedicated one, our meeting place with you, our sacrifice before you, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And I ask you to bless each and every person in here, Father, with deep faith that conquers through Jesus anything this world throws at them. Amen. Amen.